Welcome back to Random Alien Brain Droppings. I'm Suzanne Chancellor, and tonight we have Michael Lee Hill with us. Michael, how are you tonight? I'm doing fantastic. How are you doing, Suzanne? I'm doing really great. I've been wanting to talk to you for quite some time, and a lot of it has to do with uh, a lot of these really interesting lights that you've been seeing uh, where you live in Ohio. And I know that you have a YouTube channel, and I know that you're a musician, and there's a lot of really interesting things that I'd like to talk to you about. Well, it just started actually with seeing uh, these orbs of light out over Lake Erie, and uh, that just grew year by year. Um, They would come in a little bit closer and let me film them more and more, and I started to get a big library, and... Some of the footage started going viral to where uh, my YouTube channel now, which is Frozen Hill, it has, I think, like 3.7 million views right now. So that's kind of why it brought the History Channel to my doorstep. And, and you know, that gets into a whole another story we can get into here shortly. But um, That sounds great. Yeah. So then um, I, I would like to also talk to you about your connections with um, A.R. Borden. We're going to talk about that. And we're also going to talk about your um, working with him and learning about where um, your bloodline is from, which I think is very interesting. I uh, just had a mind-blowing experience. You know, with my contact with the Anunnaki, um, I, uh, I just spoke at the Erie MUFON uh, conference, and here there was a woman who uh, is, I believe she's filming a new documentary with Travis Walton, and she was there. And uh, she really liked my presentation, so afterwards she invited me to dinner with Richard Dolan and uh, Travis. And here, when I find out, she was Zachariah Sitchin's, like, close friend and uh, assistant and actually, like, filmographer. Really? With him all over. I couldn't even believe it. I was like, oh, imagine that. Wow. So that was uh, really cool. I, I was almost in tears, actually, because uh, it was so cool to get to talk to her and find out all kinds of inside stuff about Zachariah, you know? I, I read the the Twelfth Planet, and I, it was definitely something that I think more people should know about. Right on. Yeah, so that was last weekend, so it's been really cool. And I've been speaking with uh, Grant Cameron as well, and uh, that's due to, uh, you know, I guess he's tracking down, working on the uh, alien rock kind of subject matter. Right, you know? right, um, right. And it's interesting, too, because I just got contacted by Michael Luckman, who's working on it. Oh, wow. To the book. And uh, so a lot of things are coming together. And especially it's interesting to hear all these things coming up uh, regarding paranormal and, like, higher entity contact with people who have been around Eric Clapton. Now, that is interesting. And I, I noticed that you either liked or commented. I think you just liked the, the post that I put on Grant's Wall about David Bowie and Eric Clapton. So I know that you did probably read that. I and guess indeed, yeah. It's just mind-blowing, all the things. Uh, I have some stuff that's come to me through, like, you know, the NSA side. Um, 
regarding Eric's connection into some of the North American Indian tribes that are uh, specifically Anunnaki bloodline here. You see what I'm saying? Right, I do. I remember we talked about that last time and... You know, I the last time we spoke to you, we were actually going to a conference, I believe, where you're maybe going to meet up with Eric or or get in contact with him or something. And I don't, I never yeah, know what that, happened with that. That was in Columbus because uh, Eric spends most of his most of his time in Columbus, and uh, and so where it goes is. Uh, you know, it's in the universe's hands, but a lot of things are coming about that I just can't understand why. If if I think we're gonna meet, we'll just put it at that. But maybe it's just not time. Yeah, yeah. It's you know, to me, I've never had a problem being adopted, and I'm still super close with my mom and dad. Mm-hmm. And uh, so it's never like, you know, it's cool that he's Eric Clapton being a guitar player, especially. I'd love of to course. meet him, but you know. <laughs> Yeah, let's jam, you know. <laughs> right. Um, but yeah, it is what it is. But you know, I I gotta say it's it's getting taken out of my hands because Grant is gonna be going on to uh, Bill Burns' uh, radio show coming up right. on the twelfth, and right. he's he's bringing up a lot of his research and things that have um, been uncovered about you know Eric being involved with Santana, you know, with Santana's. Uh, being in contact with higher dimensional beings, you know, and being guided, you know, to do the album Supernatural even, and Eric was involved with that. But you know who else I heard is involved with all of this is uh, Robbie Robertson from the band. Oh, really? Yeah. In what way? He uh, is totally taken up in, I guess, using his North American Indian background in his music now in his comeback album and i heard if he's of the exact same tribe which is the montauk tribe in new york which they've been kind of written out of the history books Hmm. back in the early 1900s and uh they're still around but they're but robbie robertson is of the montauk tribe as well as is eric clapton has ties and what from what i learned from some of the nsa insiders Mm -hmm. is that he is like a really high-ranking family member of that side and is still very involved in uh, the affairs of that side. And what's interesting is if you type in Robbie Robertson and Eric Clapton, you'll find out that this comeback album, I think he did in 2011, Eric plays on three songs and produced it. Wow. So uh, I think that's an interesting connection, and too. And didn't you say that Eric also composed some music for Communion? Or did he produce some music? I'm not quite sure. Yeah, yes, indeed. Yeah, yeah. Interesting. Yeah, and I guess um, with the supernatural recording sessions, there's a lot of angelic encounters, which was really strange because I was doing a interview, and uh, the host shared a story with me. He knew the bass player who was the bass player for The Grateful Dead, mm-hmm. or Jerry Garcia's solo band, actually. Mm-hmm. But Eric had invited. A whole bunch of musicians. It, it, it was um, Rick Nielsen from Cheap Trick mm-hmm. uh, and this bass player that he knew from uh, Grateful Dead and had him go out to his island in the Caribbean, and uh, he had a recording studio on the island. Well, this bass player took one of his yachts 
alone out into the ocean. And when he got out there, it realized there wasn't hardly any gas and he ran out of gas. Oh my God. So he went to use the, the radio and the radio didn't work. So he was just totally adrift with no gas and going further and further out into the ocean. And he's thinking, Oh my God, I'm going to die, you know? <laughs> and he said out of nowhere, this big white boat shows up and the only person on the boat was this really like a model, like white jumpsuit woman you know and uh she pulls up and goes you know i'll tie you off and take you back and uh so she did and when they got back and he she had you know tow boated him back into to where the island was um he turned around and she was gone and uh he told this host that uh i'll never forget though that the name on her boat was the seraphim oh wow and I thought, well, that's interesting. That is you know? interesting. So yeah. what what is this thing that you posted on your wall? A huge uh, link, and it's it starts out, it's a capsule. Yeah, yeah. That is, um, boy, there's a lot that I'm just starting to release some of this stuff. I've been sitting on that for this long, and A.R. Borden just passed away. Uh, right. So I figured I think it's time to just start releasing some of this stuff. I'm, I'm glad you're paying attention. Of course what, I am. <laughs> it's my job. <laughs> right what that was was um, I can share with you as well my, like, introduction letters. I was invited into the Linkage Institute because what they were trying to do, every year these people would meet in a, they call them link conferences. Mm-hmm. And it was a conference with many different races of extraterrestrials and uh, discussing issues at hand, you know. And uh, so as far as I know, uh, you know, I joined the group. I That's why I was – that's the minutes, if you want to look at it, uh, for the 2011 meeting that happened. So I, uh, I was given that by AR. And, um, yeah, I have a lot of material as far as my introduction letter to invite – me to join the group and then from there you know all kinds of paperwork but all that led to if you recall everything that was in that um briefing mm-hmm. that was in 2011 and it said the time frame was 22 months for these events to occur if you do the math that leads you to around the fall of 2012 and uh you know as far as the, you know that there's this galactic wave that was spit out from the galactic center did you mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. and uh you know it's been expanding through the universe all this time well they they truly had a time where it was to get here and not only that nibiru every time it comes through the solar system obviously it's not catastrophic um so the question is why what makes it a survivable transit you know, and they said what it truly is, is if when the planet comes, I'm talking about Nibiru, when it comes through our solar system, if it comes between Mars and Jupiter, it more than likely will be okay because we got enough of a buffer between us mm-hmm. where it doesn't wreak havoc. But if it comes between Mars and the Earth, then we have nothing to buffer us and it's catastrophic. All evidence, scientific Vatican through their uh, Lucifer telescope. Isn't that interesting? Mm-hmm. They had this as a doomsday transit. So what the NSA and what A.R. Borden had us do, um, which I've never really released a lot of this information to, but um, I guess there's many other groups like 
behind in the, I guess, shadow government, if you want to look at it. Right. It was involved with this as well. It wasn't just us. But in AR's part, he formed a team of six hybrids of the Nephilim bloodline of, uh, you know, Anunnaki human hybrids. Right. And uh, the easiest way, I can actually, I have the actual manuals that explains all of this. And one of them was done by him called Planetary Engineering. Um, I can share that with you. But anyhow, to make it as simple as possible, we did a really long project for him. And it was totally trying to help, you know, uh, man, this gets really deep. But what we did was picture six people. Those six people are, you know what a Merkaba is, right? No, I do not. Okay. Um, <laughs> you, you know that Star of David shape? Yes. The double tetrahedron? Yes. Um, everything, every living object, whether it be a tree, a dog, a person, a planet, the energy field actually takes the shape of that double tetrahedronal shape. That's why it's so important in sacred geometry mm-hmm. and anything else. So in other cultures, they call that aura field the Merkaba, which means it's, it's Merkaba means, uh, light travel vehicle. Yeah, I think it's, uh, I forget what other country. It's one of the Middle Eastern countries. But, um, they say that certain spiritual practices and meditation and visualization techniques, they can get, start to spin those energy fields in the very specific ways until it truly ignites into a little miniature supernova or sun around that individual and it becomes an interdimensional travel vehicle. Hmm. Which, uh, they say that somehow the spiritual masters will do that. And, cause truly once you're sitting inside of a ball of light, you get a free go anywhere pass in the universe because light is truly the only thing that is not bound by this universe's laws of physics. Um, so this gets into, if you can ignite one person's Merkaba field, Truly what it does is take that person out of the space-time continuum. Because if it can travel interdimensionally, obviously it, it you're removed from this space-time continuum. And how do they do that? What they do, I as far as doing it physically for the person, what I understand is if you picture a double tetrahedron, mm-hmm. it is spinning the top one clockwise mentally while you spin the bottom one counterclockwise. Mm-hmm. And if you visualize those going just like where it's up to a, a thousand rotations per second, it's truly gonna turn into an orb of light, right? Right, right. Okay. And these orbs of light is what's showing up worldwide right now. Like I've been contacted by Bigelow Aerospace now. By the way, this is really cool. You know, who Ryan Skinner is. He wrote the book about the Skinwalker Ranch. Yes. He just contacted me. He uh, he was talking to a Bigelow investigator and was asking him what's truly up. And the Bigelow investigator told him if he really wants to know what these orbs of light are, he should talk to me. I was like, wow. Wow, Bigelow's <laughs> referring people to me. <laughs> and so what would your answer be then? <laughs> um, well, I met, when I met the Anunnaki, they said, we have been told, you know, you've been filming this over Lake Erie. But what the A.R. Borden told me is, Many advanced races use this exact same spiritual light technology. So just because it's an orb of light, it may not be 
Anunnaki, but because of the Anunnaki's being intertwined in human history to the point that it is, that more than likely it, it is Anunnaki, you know? Um, but I can tell you, uh, for one person, if you've ignited, uh, that, that field ends about three feet above your head and about three feet below, uh, your feet. So if you have a sphere that big, let's just say, uh, that would be a 12-foot sphere if someone was 6 foot. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so, but if you get three of those beings, and this is actually confirmed in some paperwork that was declassified recently by the UK Ministry of Defense. They said that these orbs of light are the real thing. They don't know how they charge. They don't know how they uh, keep their energy without dispersing out into the rest of the atmosphere, but they can divide, combine back into one. But they said the most crazy uh, example of this orbs of light is it said that they've been witnessed. They can come together in a triangular shape and create one physical uh, triangular craft that acts as one craft then like re, will reflect radar. It, it's, these orbs of light can become a technological craft. Now, uh, one of the beings that I met in, in person was explaining this to me, and he said that three of these beings who are, have ignited their Merkaba fields sit in a triangular for, formation. And he said, Michael, you know how all physical matter is truly just light that's been slowed in frequency, and mm. it, becomes, it becomes physical. He said, so picture a basketball size ball of physical material that was gold a couple other uh elements that were in there but he said that picture a substance that is the closest to becoming light again he said it's screaming to become light and you put that ball of material between the three beings who are in a triangular shape making merkaba fields they start to will now, mind you, each being who has ignited their Merkaba field is generating massive amounts of energy. They can start to will that in infinity loops into that ball and out to another, to one of the other three, and they keep energy into that sphere through their crown chakras once they have all three ignited their Merkaba, Merkaba fields. Sooner or later, they will that basketball size material between them to become a miniature sun so to speak it, it it will ignite into light because they will it to you know it's right on the threshold of becoming light anyhow so when they dump a lot more energy into it 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 becomes a miniature sun from that point they can take that into the greater sacred geometry that's being formed by the three of them and create like a 50 foot sphere of light Instead of 10 foot. So it just keeps multiplying and multiplying. Yeah. So he said that once you have a 50 foot sphere of light that's going to have three beams in in it, then three of those 50 foot spheres of light, which is going to make nine beams, can then create a craft for them to use uh, to come. He said then really nine of them in service to the rest of them can create a craft that thousands of them can use. But now the Bigelow investigator told me, that over the skinwalker ranch and by the way he said we know that what you're filming there is the real deal because it's exactly the same phenomenon that they've been filming over the utah skinwalker ranch they know it 
And uh, he also told me it's the exact same uh, phenomenon that is showing up over Hestdale in Norway. And what's really cool mm. is uh, SETI and some of the best scientists and some of the universities there have set up 24-7 observatory stations that have some of the best equipment in the world. And they've been filming the Hestdale in uh Valley for 25 years now. Mm-hmm. So in 2011, uh, they released all of their research in a documentary called Hastale and the UFO Portal. I saw that. Yeah, isn't it fantastic? Well, you know, what's funny is, is now that I'm, I'm listening to what you're saying about the orbs of light. Yeah. And a lot of the things that I saw in that documentary don't seem as similar. Um, those light anomalies seem a lot different to me. Because they seem to move um, in different directions. They seem to also be a different um, appearance than a lot of the glowing orange orbs that I think is what you're referring to with uh, these uh, beings of, of light, these Merkaba beings. Uh, actually, they're, they're exactly the same. Are That's, they really? Because yeah, I, um, I, I swear, I could have sworn they were more... Um, more like a, I don't want to say white instead of like an orangish color. Well, actually, not that it makes a difference. Obviously, yeah, I'm just it says they know. the orbs of light can uh, appear in many colors depending on what frequency. Um, most okay. of the time, um, they can appear totally multicolored, where it's almost like they're pulsing through the whole spectrum many times per second. Okay, that makes sense. Um, but, you know, sometimes they appear totally green, which I've never seen them appear green, but I, I've heard that, uh, I have, uh, I've seen them. What I can tell you is in Hastale and, um, the Bigelow investigator turned me on to, they'll take on a triangle sh- shape, just like everywhere they're doing it, you know? Mm-hmm. The, the point is, this is really messed up because in the UK Ministry of Defense, they released that these orbs of light can come together and create technology an actual physical craft that is technological. In the Skinwalker Ranch, the reasons they're called Skinwalkers is the Native American Indians of that area would see these orbs of light take on physical, biological shape of like they'd become giant wolves so, um, or giant deer or uh, uh, whatever, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and the Skinwalker Ranch, they said the scariest part to them was this Whatever intelligence is behind the orbs of light, which, by the way, uh, the A.R. Borden side of people, they told me that they truly, as far as our powers that be, they look at these orbs of light as multidimensional drones. And they said that uh, they don't know, they don't claim to know who is behind it, which I think, I know A.R. Borden knows most of it is Anunnaki, but they said it might not be from this timeline. The intelligence behind the orb of light here might maybe from our past or present. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and that's the exact same thing this uh, investigator, by the way, his name was Gary Hernandez. And uh, he is the same guy that contacted me. We, we actually talked on the phone maybe about five times and via email about ten times and actually started to get a little rapport going, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, at the Skinwalker Ranch, he said that, you know, all these scientists were living there, so they would go and take bags of groceries or whatever because they had to eat, and they would take them back and unload a bag of groceries in the closets and put some stuff in the refrigerator, walk into the other room, forget 
you know, they remember that they forgot to do something, turn right around, walk back in that room, and all their groceries would be back in the bags. What? And, uh, yeah, they called it poltergeist activity. It was yeah, almost yeah, like yeah. this intelligence letting them know that it knew, you know. Um, and I've experienced things like that as well, that it's just ways that they'll communicate through your own personal reality that, mm-hmm. that uh, is just not quite right. So I guess my point in all this is no one has truly asked, well, what is it like to meet a multidimensional being, you know? When you sit here and you talk about, you know, speaking to an Anunnaki, I'm sure that any person in the field also <laughs> would be saying, oh, really? You know, I mean, as much as we talk about it, and as much as we know that these things do exist, I don't really think that a lot of us would bring that up in a typical conversation about, you know, ufology, <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah. so, so it seems very unique that you actually have had that opportunity and that they would actually pre- present themselves to you and tell you exactly who they are. You know, do they actually use the term Anunnaki? I mean, or is it just yeah, something that yeah. you, really? Yeah, because my first meeting with them was in the middle of 2008. And at that time, there was no ancient aliens on TV. I didn't know what an Anunnaki even was. Um, they, they, uh, addressed themselves to me. They said, we have been known as the Anunnaki in the past. Um, I do know their true name now, by the way, if you're interested. Sure. Because um, that's our word for them. Right, right. Nibiru is our word for their planet. That's not what they call their planet. Right. Um, they said they call their planet the Sa'amai, and then the people of the Sa'amai are the Sa'am, and then Sa'am translated to our language would be Sam. Mm-hmm. Um, which I was thinking Uncle Sam. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, um, that's what they refer to themselves. And I can tell you the NSA people, they refer the, to them. When you talk to them, they refer to them as the Sam. And, uh, well, the fact that I even refer to them is, is kind of baffling to me. <laughs> I'll tell you what's cool though is a lot of evidence is coming out. You know what's going to prove the Anunnaki to the, the masses is through the, the 1954 Eisenhower right. extraterrestrial meetings because Bob Dean has went on record and I have the video up on my website of him saying this. One of the races they met were the Anunnaki. And, uh, he said that the Anunnaki scared the shit out of them back then because when they came down they didn't land they hovered over the runway for three days and the inhabitants didn't get out of the craft they demanifested and then rematerialized right in the room where they were and when they spoke to the people they spoke through telepathy mm-hmm. and their mouths didn't work well in 1954 i guess that was almost too much for some of them you know of course but um, according to what I understand, and according to A.R. Borden, too, because I can share the interview where I brought this up, they put an offer on the table. They said, we will help humanity get to the golden era and using free, unlimited energy. Um, but they said that one of the stipulations was we had to forget and get away from our nuclear power ambitions because we truly didn't understand what we're messing with and evidently they're right right yeah absolutely (laughs) um and i think it's interesting in that sense because it ties in now all of the sightings over military installations where they're making uh, nuclear weapons to go in the no-go and uh you know where they shot off the the nuclear weapon warhead dummy and one of them came in and shot it out of the sky right you know um so over and over again i think that they've been reiterating that point that 
you don't know what you're doing with nuclear energy. But uh, they said, we're not invaders. We're not going to come down. And, and from what I understand, in 1954, we were really not ready to – we just got out of World War II. You know what I mean? They're like, mm-hmm. well, if they want to invade, we're just getting rid of our weapons, you know? Um, but uh, they – it was an interesting warning because it's the exact same warning that was given in the uh, recent crop circle with the alien holding the disc. You know what mm-hmm, I'm saying? Mm-hmm. And it was uh, beware of the bearers of false gifts and promises, and it was being held by a gray. Back in 1954, what's being revealed now is they said, we know you're meeting with other races as well. We highly suggest you do not partner with the grays. You won't like it, you know? Mm. And uh, and evidently, that's exactly what we did because the grays would share technology with us to reverse engineer and help us reverse engineer it if we gave them permission to right. abduct. Right, right. And that's, we got sold out, you know? Right. But, so I asked A.R. Borden during this interview, and many times in person we've talked about it, um, I said, what's it going to take to get an- another offer on the table? Mm-hmm. You know, like, mm-hmm. we could use their help about right now to help up clean some of Fukushima up. Well, you know, I don't think they're going to help us unless we can help ourselves. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point, too. You know what well, I'm saying? What he said is, he goes, uh, just because we didn't openly go into uh, – a partnership with the Anunnaki. He said, first of all, what hasn't been revealed yet is they also, one of the stipulations was we get away from nuclear power and it was the installation of what our government looked at as an Anunnaki kingdom is what they called it. Hmm. So they would have been in charge and our government was like, well, we'll let us think on this, you know? Right. Um, but, uh, so can I ask you a question? I'm, as far as that meeting with Eisenhower is concerned, mm-hmm. I think there's a lot of confusion. I think a lot of people have said, um, some people say, oh, it was the Greys, and you know, some, nobody's really clear on exactly who it was that actually manifested. So then, did, were there any uh, descriptions of what these beings look like? All I know is I, I got clued into it through Bob. You know, mm-hmm. I had heard, um, you know, because right now, from what I understand, there's three different races that met with Eisenhower. Oh, wow. And I, I don't know what the third one was. I know the Greys were one and the Anunnaki were also another race. But listen to the, here, because this is what's really interesting, is what A.R. Borden says, just because we didn't publicly start working with them, we did go into technology transfer programs with them in the shadow world. And the NSA had been working with a council of Anunnaki for a very long time uh, called the Cortium. And that's truly just a name of a council of Anunnaki who are working within the higher echelons of the NSA. And he said that um, a lot of technology has been shared, which is he, – he named one of it is called ENS, which is electrical neural sensing, which is can be thought of as Anunnaki technology-assisted remote viewing, if you can imagine that. What? Yeah, it's uh not only can they remote view and send their consciousness to another location, but they can up the body's chi to the level that when they send energy elsewhere, because they've proven now that when you remote view or even under hypnosis is how they found this out, which is really fascinating. So back in 1960s, the government was looking into the the subject of hypnosis because, you know, it's they didn't know what the hell's going on. And under hypnosis, this one, their subject was really distraught because he was going through a divorce and he really couldn't focus. So they said, well, let's just, we're going to put you under hypnosis and just for fun, just 
mentally go out and get in your car, drive, just pretend you're driving to your wife's house, and then walk in the house to see what she's doing. And he does, and uh, and they're like, well, what's she doing? Well, she's writing a letter. And mind you, he's perfectly stated he thinks he's making all this up in his mind, you know, mm-hmm. just making up a story. Oh, walk up behind her and look look over her shoulder. Tell us what she's writing. He does. And uh, and so when he's done, they record everything and it gets done with the session. And uh, they think that's that. Well, the next day, for real, he did get a letter from his wife and she wanted to try to reconcile and make everything, get everything. She wanted to get back together with him. Wow. So at this point, they're like, well, holy shit. Right. You know? So then they went to the next step of this. Instead of just sending him to his wife's house, they just sent him to the next room over where they had a bunch of technological equipment to see if any type of energy, whether it be subtle energy or whatever, photons, uh, entered that room. Sure enough, there is a physical component that enters another room. And they say, we all do it. If you're thinking of somewhere else, you are sending a physical component of your energy body and time is not a factor, which is interesting. But so then they got to where they could amplify their own body chi or life force to such a degree that when they remote viewed, they could bring a lot of energy to a new location and bring in a new avatar. Mm. So not only can they remote view in a new location, but now they, they can operate in it. Wow. And time is not a factor. And the next engineer, not even reverse engineered, I guess it's just us working with them now, is a subject called LERM, which is the instant manifestation of physical objects from light. You'd think of it as a miracle, you know, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, but they call it light encoded reality matrix uh, or LERM for short. So, uh, you know, in their terminology, when you're talking to them, they'll, they'll tell you, think about learning 10 objects. The first one is an orange, you know, but you know what, what was in that list? What? A deceased pet. Oh my God. And then it went on and the next one was like, a ball of yarn, you know what I mean? I'm like, what the hell's going on? And then it got to the end of the list. It said, how did you feel when you got to number five? Said it was put there on purpose because it raises a lot of flags in a lot of people's minds. Like, what the hell? Is it, is this pet cemetery? Right. You know, is that really my dog? Is right. that a clone? And it right. said, really, it, it brings, cause it said truly to manifest anything in this reality. It won't if you don't believe it. Or, or if you give it a no, you know what I mean? So anything, you can give it a yes, a maybe, or a no. Yes, it's going to manifest. A maybe, it's not going to manifest, but maybe it can be changed. A no, uh, so that it said truly what we need to understand. And I guess Tibetan monks know about this as well because they can do the same thing and they call them tulpas. T-U-L-P-A. And what that is, is, uh, some of the more advanced monks can meditate on the thought form of a revered monk from their past, which with such tenacity that that monk will reappear in the physical. Oh my God. And not only can they perceive it, it's perceivable by anyone that's around and it comes manifested then with its own innate consciousness, personality and everything that is the old monk. But what they said is getting back to the deceased pet, which this is hard for me to wrap my head around, but (laughs) it said that the same thing is, you know, say you're going to learn an apple. Well, they said the fact of the matter is that none of us within the matrix, so to speak, has ever tasted a real apple. 
we have all tasted a facet of the holographic template, which is apple. Right. And each one of us tastes a different apple. Right. When you learn an apple, it comes from the higher dimensional Akashic Records blueprint for what is apple. And it'll be the most mind-blowing, delicious apple that you've ever put in your mouth. In the same way, it said if you did learn your deceased pet, it's going to be your best version of your de- deceased pet. Right. Well, you know, isn't that true? I've heard that people who um, who are mediums, okay, and they come forward, say somebody goes to a medium and they want to contact one of their um, deceased uh, relatives, and the medium says, well, um, they're with me right now, and they're describing what they look like, and they always look like they did at their best. They present themselves how they want to be presented yeah, right. in that form. So they never come to the medium when they're dying or when they're old. They always come like when they're in their 20s or whatever. And so I wonder if that has something to do with what you're talking about. Absolutely. I think, uh, well, you know, I, I think the whole subject matter is something we need to start talking about, which, man, I, I just came across a new interview. It's actually kind of blowing my mind. I should share it with you. Um, you know what's involved with all of this is the Wingmakers material. Hmm. Because uh, are you familiar with the Wingmakers? You told me about this last time, so why don't you reiterate well, that? The Wingmakers are really connected into the Anunnaki subject because what's truly not understood is there's two really different specific bloodlines within the Anunnaki. It's not just one bloodline. And that is because at one point in time, the king of their planet. His name was Anu. Uh, he didn't have any children. He was the king. Uh, his first child that he had was not with an Anunnaki mother or female. Uh, he was having a relationship with a female who, in our own terminology, I guess she would be considered a wingmaker or Elohim. And uh, they had a child and the firstborn is Inky. And what people need to realize too, Inky is not a name, even though everyone calls him like that's his name. It's almost like the Dalai Lama. Mm. It's, a, it's a title. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. En means Lord, Kai means Earth. And the person, you know, Enki is Lord of the Earth. His brother was Enlil, which is Lord of the Sky. Um, in the Sumerian telling, Inky's real name is Ea, Ea. Um, but uh, anyhow, so the firstborn is a hybrid himself. And for the first time, there's a new bloodline coming into the Anunnaki family tree because up until this point, all the prehistory and all what you hear about the infighting and, uh, you know, wars be- be- between actual family clans of the Anunnaki, that was pre-Inky. So now you have this new bloodline coming in from the Anunnaki through Inky's side. But what happened then is... The next child that Anu had, uh, he was no longer in this relationship with the wingmaker mother. He had another child with a Anunnaki female, and that was Inky's younger brother then, and his name is Enlil. Uh, and um, so what happened in the mythology here is Inky was being bred. He was the prince, right, up until his brother was born according to their own succession of kingship rules pure blood will gain the throne over 
a half-blood. So the throne never went to Enki. It went to his brother, Enlil, which kind of became known as uh, Yahweh of the Bible. Like the, didn't really look favorably upon mankind, you know? So uh, it gets interesting because people like to just, you know, a lot of people see the, the blame the Anunnaki for all the world's darkness, you know, where it's really not that case. And it's actually not even what we think, because from what I understand, this could, I think it's why the movie Noah was just released, you know, with Russell Crowe, mm-hmm. because you find out that story actually goes back to the Sumerian clay tablets. And the only thing is it's told in much more detail uh, of what happened. And truly, it was because Enlil seen that there was going to be this deluge coming up and their scientists knew it, this pole shift and there's nothing they could do about it. That mm-hmm. said that even with their technology, which was really advanced, um, there was 400 million humans on the planet and they're like, well, it just must be God's will. It's going to happen. It sucks, but you know, so be it. And, uh, that didn't sit well with Inky because when they tweaked this, Neanderthal man, I guess you could say. Right. You know, to create Homo sapien, um, Inky used his own DNA. So he looked at us as family. And so what had happened was when Enlil put the word out that we're just going to let these humans perish in this deluge and, uh, wipe the game board clean, you know, Inky went to his mother's side and pleaded for help that you know, my race is in, by the way, they said this is kind of unheard of in their own, it's almost like Inky's own ascension because they share of what would be considered like a hive mind. So one of them going against the whole mm-hmm. was un, was unheard of, you know mm-hmm. what I mean? Mm-hmm. And um, so Inky goes to his mother's side and says, isn't there anything that can be done? My race is going to let this beautiful upcoming race that has so much potential just perish and uh, it's interesting because the first thing the elders said well even if we do save them and create an ark so to speak will they evolve fast enough Hmm. for this dimensional shift that's coming at the end of the cycle right being december 2012 and uh the answer was no because even in the sumerian clay tablets uh, do you know the name of where they uh, said that they brought humanity into? No. The Eden. Oh, wow. And uh, they said the truth of the matter was, even though we were created to help with the manual labor, we were treated more as pampered pets than anything. And uh, and there was no starvation. There was no homeless. There was no catalyst for change. And because of this, we were truly in Eden, and there, we weren't evolving. So the problem was that they needed to figure out a way to artificially put an accelerator pad on human conscious evolution, you know, along with the ark. It's all a plan that was put in place to save us. It wasn't because we wouldn't have purged the dark thought forms fast enough before the shift. So this experiment of duality where we would experience both light and dark energies or lower and higher vibrational energy, however you want to look at it in an accelerated fashion. It's almost like the mythology of having a devil on one shoulder and an angel on the other Right. that, you know, they whisper in your ear and they can't truly 
they can't make you do anything. They can just whisper in your ear, you know. And um, but that is their spiritual role then, and they split off into two camps: one to re- reflect back a negative polarity, and one to reflect back a positive polarity. And I think this, if this isn't known, then it, it's very confusing when you come across tales of people coming across the Anunnaki bad cop camp, so to speak. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, I can guarantee you, if you are a being that has a lot of fear and doubt and negativity in your mm-hmm. own belief system, and you come up against a multidimensional being whose purpose it is to make you experience your own dark baggage, mm-hmm. you're going to look at that being as a demon, you know? That makes sense, yeah. Yeah, and, but in other tellings of the Anunnaki, they, they're helping us evolve and giving us higher mathematics and understanding of sacred geometry and architecture and, uh, you know, so on and so on. So I think it needs to be understood what's happening here. Um, but the thing is, Graham Hancock described this mural that was on this ancient temple, and he called it the myth of the churning of the milky ocean. And he said what was important in this is – in this mythology, the most important key aspect was the actual milky ocean itself because in their own minds, that is what the rest of the universe was sitting in or resting upon. And they said this milky ocean had two teams of churners, a team of darkness and a team of light. But what wasn't understood is it's not a matter of the light beating the dark or the dark beating the light. There's much spiritual wisdom encoded in this because the fact is they're working in cooperation hmm. to turn the evolution of mankind into the higher realms. Right. But when I met them in person, they said that their own succession of kingship and how, how they relate to humanity is all based on the processional cycle. And at that time, back in 2008, like we're saying, I, I didn't know what a processional cycle even was. Uh, but they told me that with the coming of the age of Aquarius, which is February 14th, 2009, by the way, mm-hmm. um, that their own governmental change happens and, you know, how they relate. And they said that this experiment of duality and of accelerating both polarities ends. I wonder why. Um, because the the experiment was successful. Oh, was it? Yeah, he said that we don't understand because we're in it. Right. But they right. said even from the outside, the the speed at which humanity is evolving, right, is unheard of in the bigger universe. I agree with that. But then again, when you're saying the evolution of human beings on this earth, I almost feel as if our conscious evolution is not evolving as it could. <laughs> Do you know what I'm saying? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Well, you know what's interesting is in this experiment, it was said that uh, Marduk long ago felt that it was most important to accelerate technological evolution over even spiritual is the most helpful thing that we could do, which – both sides, it has to be balanced, you know. But to do this, they remove the whole feminine aspect from even our, our Mary Magdalene. For They made her into a horror. And here she was Jesus' number one apostle that really got it, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so in essence, they removed the, the feminine energies because they wanted to take mankind into 
to be able to uh, evolve technologically uh, faster. So that you know that part of the brain is the analytical scientific part i'm not saying i agree with that but anyhow i guess it did work what they told me was they perceive time differently than we do um and the only way we could explain like understand it is if we were doing an experiment ourselves on trying to make an animal that was close to being self-aware let's say a chimpanzee if we were trying to make it smarter but like next week we're going to go on a two-week vacation well their two-week vacation to them is thousands of years for us, you know what I mean? Mm. But to them, they left for two weeks, and when they came back, their chimpanzees had created churches and <sighs> football stadiums right. and, and computer networks, and they're like, holy crap, man, what's going on here? <laughs> and uh, he said that they're even uh, blown away by uh, the speed at which humanity is evolving. And obviously, you know, we got a lot, long way to go, but... I, you know, truly the next step needs to be the, the freeing of humanity. And they told me specifically that humanity has earned the right to be treated as equals. He said all along, really, truly what happened within their family, uh, sides was more along the lines of one side truly don't, just didn't trust us. That if we were given unlimited free energy, they said, what, what do you think that the people that are at war right now with their brothers and sisters because they don't believe the same way. What do you think they're going to do with their unlimited free energy? Hmm. Um, what do you think that the the mentality of a mindset of a person that would take a woman who was just rumored to be having an affair uh, and they take her into the middle of the village and mm-hmm. they all stone her to death? Mm-hmm. What do you think that they're going to do with their unlimited free energy? They said that once unlimited free energy is released onto a planet, Everyone has access to it. No one. It is the great equalizer, and uh, so truly, they they said they're they're not. We're not ready. Yeah, they they were. <laughs> we're really, not ready for that. Yeah, yeah. There's just no way. So, I mean, we, we would kill ourselves. My only thought to that was, well, because. Believe me, when this happened, I was in a, a teleconference meeting with some of the heads of the Knight Templars and stuff. It's really freaking crazy. I um, bet. Uh, but I, I said, well, we're all in agreement that there are higher intelligences at play here. How about we talk to them? Because I truly think that any upcoming civilization would have had to face this exact same point in their own evolution that if they're growing technologically but not spiritually right they're going to self-implode right so how about we talk to a race that got through this maybe a million years ago you know and and just learn how to get along in peace and how to implement that into a system of governance that works for everyone on a planet and uh they said, well, yeah, that's a good idea. <laughs> you know <what> I mean? <laughs> right? You think? <laughs> wow, yeah. that's pretty fascinating. Yeah, it's cool stuff, man. I yeah, know. it is. But, I mean, how does that make you feel? On the one hand, it's it's almost like it's a lot to carry, you know, when you have all this information. And Well, yeah, you know what A.R. Borden said is the hardest thing is for an individual to know that this is the reality and not have it reflected back in your normal day. Right. 3D life. Right. It's like, I can't talk about this right. with most of my friends or anything. And it does. It sucks, man, because we're social creatures. And, uh, the, you know, it's like, I don't even talk about it unless someone asks me specifically, uh, which I learned also by the Indians, you know, like I was 
Chief Golden White Eagle. By the way, I'm really excited about this because because of my bloodline being revealed on the History Channel um, is why all this happened in the first place. Then I found out how it's connected to the Nephilim is going to be proven a reality, which is the Anunnaki human hybrid bloodline. Mm-hmm. And um, if you look in 1997, they dev- discovered a brand new DNA lineage, which is called Haplogroup X. Right. And Haplogroup X is only in 3% of the na- North American Indians and uh, also the skeletons that have been removed from these earth mounds. You know, Newark, Ohio, and the Serpent Mound, and there was thousands of them all around the Great Lakes, um, and in ancient Israel. And that's interesting because what we're finding out then is uh, this is one of the lost tribes of Israel, where it went. You know, they became intermingled into the native North American Indian tribes. Why this is important is my own Indian heritage and the bloodline is my great-grandfather is pure-blood Seneca Indian on my biological mother's side. And then as we say, and Eric is tied in with the Montauk uh, tribe. And f- what's an interesting point is that these two tribes for a long time in history have been at war. Oh, wow. So, so both, and if you can imagine if Eric is a high ranking member and my great grandfather's remains are buried in a church of Latter-day Saints. That is interesting. Yeah. Cause obviously he's not Mormon. You know what I mean? It's, it's vice versa. They know. You know? But you know that there is a book in the Book of Mormon called the Book of Nephi. Ah, yeah, I do remember speaking about that. Yes, and for those of you who don't know that, um, the Book of Mormon is about uh, Jesus Christ when he was on the United States and North America. And there's a lot of you know controversy in regards to it being a real story, but like the Bible, which is also a story, that there were tablets that were found in Palmyra, New York, that told of the tales of Jesus Christ on American soil. So before it was obviously the Americas, but what I was going to say is that I think it's interesting about the Nephilim and how they got that name and that there was a book of Nephi that was obviously written before probably people were really talking about the Nephilim. Yeah, from what I understand from some of my inside context, they said it's better off not to even view the Book of Mormon as a religious document to uh, look at it as the most accurate history book that we have in our possession that hasn't been altered by the Vatican. And we'll leave it at that. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, perfect. But what's interesting is uh, I've been now asked to uh, speak and present at Chief Golden Light Eagle's Star Knowledge Conference. And it was mind-blowing because he knew exactly who I was. And he, he said, uh, we need your energy and we need, uh, the Nephilim ambassadors to be here. Would, would I come and speak? And I'm like, well, okay. This is crazy because these are the real deal. These are the chiefs of all the Indian nations. They come in war, paint and full, you know, and here I'm coming with the jeans. You know what I mean? <laughs> I just found out of my Indian heritage. Maybe you should I, dress up. <laughs> yeah, get a headdress, huh? <laughs> there you go. <laughs> but um, I, they also invited me to a ceremonial sweat lodge with all of them. I've never done a sweat lodge before in my life, but I'm going to do it. And, you know, if uh, God throws you that softball, I think you got to swing at it. <laughs> but that's in September, so we'll have to talk about that and how it goes. Excellent. But yeah, So it's a, a good uh, tie-in with the Indian part of this, and it's and even the Mormon stuff, Moroni, who is the angel who appeared to Joseph Smith, said that he lived many lives as a North American Indian. Well, there you go. Isn't it fascinating? 
I don't know. I have a hard, hard time sometimes when people, they put down the Bible and the Book of Mormon and all that. And it's like, who are we to discount anything? It's your interpretation of it as well. You know, yeah, so absolutely. it's just like reading any book, your interpretation of any book. Yeah. Well, those people would have been book burners in the past. You know, it's like, what the hell kind of mentality is that? You know, and actually, I think them bulldozing down these earth mounds and destroying them is equivalent to in the past of the the destruction of like the library of Alexandria, you know, and it really, it's upsetting to me that people don't take more interest in our history and trying to save some of these sites and not just bulldoze them down and turn them into parking lots, you know? Right. Absolutely. But a lot of these, I think that they're still being preserved, which is really great. But I, I don't know about the ones that you were just talking about. Did they bulldoze them over? Yeah, a lot of them. Like one, one, oh, no. one of the most famous ones is uh, in Newark, Ohio. They call it the Newark Earthworks. And uh, thank God that one's been saved because they made it into a uh, golf course. <laughs> oh, my Isn't gosh. That funny? But, um, there you go. You know what's interesting, though, is um, the oldest known version of the Ten Commandments, and it's written in stone, and it's in ancient Hebrew, was found in Newark, Ohio, in oh, those wow. earth mounds. So you start to wonder, first of all, what I'm finding out is there I've been told Christopher Columbus was about the last person to get here. There was a flourishing, well-functioning, advanced civilization here at one point. And these people, this was home base. Then they went to Samaria. Then they became the Egyptian culture. And the same mathematics and sacred geometry is encoded into the Newark earthworks as is uh, in the Giza pyramids. You know, it's, here's one good thing about this is this can't be uh this can't be withheld from humanity forever because they're finding out with ground pen penetrating radar well, let's say for instance the the sphinx in Egypt in the early 1900s the only thing visible was its head sticking up out of the sand the only reason we can see its body now is they've unearthed it they've excavated it you know Using ground-penetrating radar, they know that 99% of what is actually there is still under the sand. So imagine pristine pyramids that makes the ones in Giza look like babies that mm -hmm. they haven't had their outer casings ripped off by people to make temples out of them and whatnot. They're going to be in perfect shape. And uh, once these things are re revealed, it's going to become very apparent that there was a previous Earth history that we're not privy to, you know? Exactly. I mean, obviously, look at all the, you know, the giants that have been uncovered. And also in uh, New Hampshire, there's a site called the Great American Stonehenge that actually is predating American settlements or, or, or even any history that we have right here. On. And the thing is that they say that it was a, a lot later than it really is. Because if they say that it was earlier, then they're going to have to rewrite everything and who wants to do that yeah <laughs> you they're know? not gonna have a choice here soon. Hell no. exactly <laughs> I think it's exciting man it is um, exciting well you know they say carbon dating of of the charcoal pits at the site of the american stonehenge dates from 2000 bc to 173 bc yeah you know have you spoken with michael tellinger I have not. I think he's one of the greatest uh, researchers into the subject matter right now, and he's found in Africa some of uh, 
Oh, I've seen a video of yeah, his, yeah, actually. He talks about this, actually. Yeah, yeah. I think he's, if I can, you know, give some credit where credit is due here. I think, uh, Michael Tellinger on this subject matter, also Fritz Zimmerman, um, he wrote, Yes. The Fallen Angels yeah. of Ohio Valley, yeah. and uh, they're called the Nephilim Chronicles. Because you're speaking of giants that were unearthed from these earth mounds. What you find, and this is something that hasn't been revealed, the older you go in time, the taller the stature of the skeletons. So there's mm-hmm. been genetic work to reduce the stature. Up until now, the Nephilim are still here. It's the bloodline that I am. It's just now you can't tell the difference in height between a Nephilim. The only way you can tell is that there is an increase of chi at a cellular level. So how would you measure that? Well, what it comes through is what exactly what the History Channel revealed when they had my blood tested by a Harvard professor named David Sistrom. And uh, what they found was... The normal human body releases an enzyme just naturally called creatine kinase. And it's released by the brain to facilitate healing and it brings oxygen into the bloodstream. And the normal amounts of this in a normal human bloodline are 25 parts per liter of blood. And if there's been muscle damage or like a heart attack or anything to do with ripping of muscle, then mm-hmm. the amount of creatine kinase, your brain starts flooding your body with it um, because it's going to bring extra energy to that wounded area to facilitate healing. And th- in that case, it can go up to about 250 to about 300 tops normally. What they found in Terrell Copeland's blood um, and why he was discharged from the military and then subsequently they flew both of us to Boston and had both of our blood blood work done was mine and Terrell's CK levels are right above 2,100, uh, 2,100. So you can see a normal amount is 25 parts per liter of blood. Bloodline level of Nephilim is, well, they said that my blood, my levels of 2,100 would put me in the middle of 12 members of the shadow government, A.R. Borden Group, and they said that that would put me in the middle of those 12, and the 12 members of that, the highest was 12,000. They said how this equates is oxygen in the human bloodstream equals how much electrical capacity is available at a cellular level. And that can be thought of as chi. Mm-hmm. or uh, life force. And they said a lot of people might be of the bloodline and uh, don't even use it. You know what's interesting is, doesn't this sound a lot similar to the Star Wars stuff of the mitoc- mitochloridians, I think they call them? You know? Oh, I wouldn't even know about that. Yeah, I don't pay that close attention as, as to for that. That's kind of sci-fi stuff. geeks. Right, <laughs> I was going to say. <laughs> I am one, I will admit. <laughs> But that well, I am, but no, maybe not to that extent. Right on. But that's what it is. Uh, that's one of the indicators of uh, the Nephilim bloodline is this increase of CK. And um, the Harvard professor, he said he couldn't think of anything why the body would be producing creatine kinase in that level just 24-7. He said the only thing he could think of would be some type of unknown virus. And he said that all viruses aren't bad, by the way, uh, Mm. That a virus is one of the only things that can work on the level of DNA. And um, mm. he said he would suggest it's some type of unknown virus. And I've heard from the insiders that it's truly an Anunnaki alien virus that's introduced. And uh, it tricks. It's 
in essence tricks the brain into constantly releasing the these levels of creatine kinase and then everything in your else in your body adjusts to that you know hmm but uh that's interesting so then I mean, you and Terrell are the only ones that anyone's ever heard of having this high level. You know what? That, of creating. Uh, that's a great point. I got a letter after the History Channel uh, show aired, and uh, why this is important is he was uh, in the military, and he said we were the only two that uh, he's ever known of that had the same condition he did, and the only thing is that our military would abduct him out of the quarters and drug him and put him into a, a medical facility for like three days with uh, baking soda and stuff, trying to get his level, CK levels down. They're trying to figure out what the hell was going on. Why baking soda? I, said, I don't know. It said something to do with them trying to thin out his blood or something. Uh, so he actually revealed this to me, you know, and I have, I have his letter. You know what? I'll just send it to you and you can sh- yeah, share Yeah, do. Definitely. Things. I would love to see it. Um, yeah, it was really shocking. That was the first time I realized that, you know, the powers that be are taking an interest in people of this bloodline. And, uh, it makes, it makes you wonder, doesn't it? Yeah. Well, does it make you nervous? Well, you know, it's already happened to me to, um, and it was A.R. Borden's, the, well, the group he works with. They're called the Labyrinth Group. And, uh, before, you know, some people would go, well, that ain't cool. Cause what they did was send a woman to infiltrate my life and become my girlfriend and take a blood sample from me. And, uh, okay. and uh, it wasn't, it wasn't with my permission and it wasn't, Painless. <laughs> um, oh my god! It, uh, and it happened during the most private. You know, we were kind of fooling around. You know what I mean? And mm-hmm. uh, and and I, this is going to get into you know. Obviously, I can't explain exactly what happened, but okay. let's just say she had a ring on. That if you picture a small straw and you bent that straw into a heart shape, like a perfect heart shape, and at the bottom of the heart. It actually came to what looked like a, a really super sharp scalpel, hmm. and it took blood into that. Uh, it was like a holding area, the actual heart shape oh my God. tube. And it was weird because how this all came about was, you know, during, you know, getting ready to go to sleep, let's just say, all of a sudden I felt like I got stung by a hornet <gasps> on my privates. You know, what? I was like, whoa, stop, man. I, you know, really, I think I might even be bleeding. And, uh, she's like, Shh, don't worry about it. You know, it, it's okay. And I was like, well, you got a ring on or what? something happened, you know, and, and she, right. oh, don't worry about it. And she, you know, I, I kind of forgot about it. And it wasn't until the next day that we got up and I had to give her a ride home and it was still dark out. So, uh, I got up, got dressed, you know, put back on my clothes and, Gave her a ride home, and when I got home, I went to take a shower, and that's when I realized my underwear was just filled with blood. And oh uh, I went to my bed, my bed was filled with blood. And what? Uh, so I had to, like, process this, because this is the first time, uh, th- this was a breach of my trust. You know what I mean? And, and I knew mm-hmm. something was up. So, uh, it was like the next time I seen her, which was, I, think like two days because i didn't call her the next day i was like i didn't even know what to do at this point uh i, I mean did you automatically think that something bad went down um, i mean yeah actually because i knew like in 
interestingly enough, the ne- the next time I seen her, the first thing I said is, listen, I'm not stupid. You know, I know something happened. And uh, so you're going to have to conf- tell me right now or we're just never talking again. And she said, your hard-earned tax dollar is being put to good use. That's her first words to me. She said, Michael, I was sent here. Um, you were a job. I didn't think I would have feelings for you, but I do, and I would never hurt you. But the people I work for wanted to confirm what the History Channel had revealed about your blood. And they have, and it is the Anunnaki bloodline, and they're very upset that you haven't had children. And she said, she called me a breeder. <laughs> I know, this is weird. What? She goes, you are a breeder, and it's not me, because she said, I'm fixed. That um, okay. these people will be introducing you to someone of your bloodline because they think it's very important that you have a child. And uh, I'm like, well, that, okay. that's interesting. And then I even went a little bit further with all this, and I, because she was being very upfront and, you know, telling me everything. She said she was a part of a, a psych, psychological operation group out of Fort Bragg, and uh, that. When I looked at the ring, I couldn't see any holes into the ring. And I said, how's the blood get in? She goes, boy, you don't get much by you, do you? And she said, you know that most of an atom is empty space. She said, what we need out of your blood is microscopic. And this is uh, like a nanotechnology tech ring. <laughs> it's like, wow. Okay. But, uh, yeah, that's the last time. You know what? She did actually come over one time after that, and I had already started dating my fiancé now. So my fiancé got to meet her. That was interesting. Oh, that's um, nice. But, so how this all gets back to, I know A.R. Borden is the head of the Labyrinth Group. Um, when I asked her who she worked for, she said, you know how we all go through labyrinths and that there are certain people oh, no. who are in charge of creating labyrinths. And uh, some people end up, creating their own labyrinth and break right out of the one that's here. She said, I work for the people who make labyrinths. And I, you see what I'm saying? And mm-hmm. I even uh, talked to AR about this and uh, he point blank said in, uh, uh, by the way, who AR Borden is would be the person who, you know what the Lockheed Martin skunk works is? Yeah. Well, their liaison into the black world would have been AR Borden. Oh, wow. He's, you know, that that's who he is. Um, hmm. He said that what I what I needed to pay attention to was the labyrinth group, and he said, and so you know, they're not all Sam, which which now you know what that means. Right, um, exactly. I don't know who the other races are that make up the labyrinth group, but how it works is the NSA has a secret division above that that gets, gets into the shadow world, and that's called the ACIO, which is the Alien Contact Interface Organization. Then there's even a more secretive part of the ACIO, which is the Labyrinth Group. The Labyrinth Group is the actual place where there is contact with extraterrestrial races. You understand what I mean? In Mm -hmm. Labyrinth laboratories, there are greys and there are Anunnaki actually here on the planet working in those places. And what are they doing, working, doing what? Uh, Well, that's what that, uh, that meeting that I just put up, okay. you know, um, they're discussing things like that and how to alleviate those things. You know, right now, personally, man, I'm going to go out on a limb and I know I'll probably get killed for this because I'm not supporting chemtrails. But 
I don't think we understand what it truly is. I think the reality of the situation is we're going through solar flare activity that's off the charts. It was just released that we barely missed a extinction event in 2012 because a big chunk of the sun blew off and, and luckily it went the opposite direction. But by the way, when I told you I was doing this work for A.R. Borden and this group mm-hmm. of hybrids, that's what we're doing. We're talking about Merkaba fields and the energy fields being able to be ignited around a person and it becomes an mm-hmm. interdimensional uh, vehicle for travel. Well, if everything has an energy field, what happens when you ignite the Earth's Merkaba? Right. It's, wow. And it said that Nibiru, they do this with mental energy and it, they make almost what you would think of as a Dyson shell of energy around their planet to help buffer those planetary and solar energies. Um, so uh, I think that we're getting help to survive this solar phase that we're going through because it's just off the charts. People don't know here. It's not being put on TV for them. Oh, yeah, I totally wouldn't. But you know what I mean? Because they did the same thing on Nibiru. They said why they were here, even mining gold, is they would put it into a powderized chemical format and put it up into their atmosphere. Well, that sounds familiar. Oh, really? Um, And one thing, because a couple years ago, uh, I kind of was just under the thought that is our black ops and it's for no benefit to humanity whatsoever. And during an interview, if you remember, I think in China, there was this big, they said it was a rocket eventually, but there was this huge plume, like a chemtrail plume that came off of the land and went for hundreds of miles in the sky and it was all over the news. Well, CBS News showed me that and they said, what do you think of this? And I said, I think that's something from our side, being Earth, you know, military, I don't know. I don't, I don't think it's something higher. And, uh, so the next day I went down to the lake and the whole sky from horizon to horizon was filled with them. Wow. Um, to me, it was like them saying, you might want to rethink your answer. <laughs> you know what I mean? And um, so sure enough, first of all, it was mind-blowingly beautiful. I have put the, the this footage up on the tube so people can see it. By the way, if anyone wants to see it, or do you know my uh, channel on YouTube? I don't want to go ahead and let us know what it's it is. Frozen Hill. That's it. One word. Frozen Hill. And I have all the documentaries that I've put together and I've shown uh, like a local MUFON, uh, recent MUFON events and stuff. They're all there. Um, but you can, one of the clips you'll see, it's during a sunset and the whole sky is just filled with thousands of them really and it's beautiful so i start filming them just because i'm it's like you're looking at a picasso you know in wow. real life and the orbs of light start showing up oh really about wow. 10 minutes of filming you know the sky and uh so i, I found that to be quite a, a revelation you know i was going back to what we were talking about earlier about the uh the merkaba energy and and the, the balls of light mm-hmm. And how they would uh, get together and then create the the basketball-sized uh, ball of light in the center, mm-hmm. which would actually allow them to make it bigger. Is that which is that correct? Yeah, yeah. Cause, cause, okay. Yeah. So, so that being said, um, what do you think about, or have you heard anything about? Um, say, like the Phoenix Lights event. They're exactly the same. As a matter of fact, you okay. want to hear a weird. Uh, 
I'm not going to be able to remember this guy's name, but he is the actual news reporter in Phoenix that broke that story. And then he moved from Phoenix to Cleveland, and now he's breaking the Lake Erie UFO story. It's the same guy. Oh, wow. That is interesting. Isn't it? And it's it's the exact same phenomenon. Like I said, that's backed up by, uh, well, they're not going to go public, but I've talked with, you know, a Bigelow aerospace investigator, and uh, they know it's the same phenomenon showing up worldwide. It's happening over Phoenix. It's happened over Texas, Mexico, uh, Norway, the UK, over the Great right. Lakes. Lake Ontario is getting a lot of uh, activity as well. They're showing up over major cities and having mass sightings where hundreds, thousands of people are seeing these all over the world. And it is being presented to the public in the news, but they treat them like they're isolated events. Mm-hmm. Where they're not. They're the exact same mm-hmm. phenomenon. They're flying in the same formations. And once you see exactly. these clips put together, I created a, you know, how I realized this, because when I first started coming into contact with this phenomenon over the lake, I didn't know what it was. I thought maybe it's some type of natural phenomenon that people don't know about, kind of like ball lightning or something. Mm-hmm. I had no clue. Um, it was when I was working with the History Channel, and one of the producers brought me over a laptop. He said, I want to get your opinion on this footage, and I looked at it, and I was like, holy shit, that's a, it looks exactly like what I filmed over the lake, and the guy laughed, and goes, yeah, that's why we're asking you, oh, and wow. uh, so this is the first time then I started doing a little research into where the stuff was showing up, and through some of my contacts I had made in the field and friends and whatnot, I started to accumulate a lot of these news programs and, uh, you know, things, and so I realized I had probably about 50 minutes of these, so I just slapped them all together and put them up onto uh, YouTube, and I call it the Anunnaki are showing up worldwide, and that video has went viral. It's 1.7 million views right now. Wow! So I was like, that's kind of cool, you know? Yeah, I, I can't say that they the, the powers that were, I like to call them, uh, <laughs> have definitely tried to stop me. So when I get one, mm-hmm. like, you know. Every time that they tried to stop me, it's just worked out that their efforts had the exact opposite effect. Right, right. Um, you know, they attacked me at one point, broke my jaw in three places right before what? I was going to do a CBS News interview. What? Yeah, and uh, who? Oh, black ops people who truly at this time this is what happened. Um, uh, I was drugged, and when I awoke. My jaw was really shattered in three places. What? Said that uh, the doctor said it looked like someone hit me with brass knuckles under my chin. What? And I had to have the left side of my face wired back together. And oh my this was God. one week before my first CBS News interview. With when was this? About two thousand six, maybe. You know, I'm not. Oh but the good thing is, well, check this out. I get home. And from the hospital and have my face wired back together. And it's probably four days before the interview. And, uh, so I was physically in the process of calling them to cancel the interview because I really couldn't talk. Um, my, mm-hmm. I, I've had to relearn how to talk because mm-hmm. it's really weird. You wouldn't even think about how like your tongue has tongue memory of where your teeth mm-hmm. are and stuff. And all of a sudden, Absolutely. you know, there's new stuff going on in there. My tongue's slapping exactly. against my teeth. And so I was going to, I was going to cancel the interview and something came over me. I knew it wasn't coincidence. And uh, I'm like, you know, screw it. I'll mumble through the interview. You son of a bitches, you know, <laughs> and I did. So it was really strange wow. though, because that night when they go to show my footage and 
thank God I did have a video rolling and I got this and I got it up on YouTube. Um, when they tried to show the news segment, something hit their whole TV station with like an EMP ah. pulse and took down the station. And all of a sudden, mm-hmm. like all this noise goes over the TV and the signal gets shut down and they go back to the reporter. He's like, well, we did have some interesting footage to show you. And then what? they go back to the reporters and they're all kind of freaked out. They're like, wow, there must be something spooky going on with that tape, you know? And, and uh, so you can imagine me sitting on my couch with my face wired back together and seeing this happen. I was scared for my life. And uh, the next day, I felt like there was going to be a knock on the door from the men in black. You know what I mean? Like, at yeah. that point, I'm like, what the fuck is going on? You know? Right. And right. so the next day, I took all my footage. My thought was, if they're going to kill me, I'm going to get my footage to the person I respect most in the UFO field. And at that time, it was David Sarita because I just watched the case for uh, – NASA UFOs, and I was just really impressed with his research and just him in general, you know. So I sent him all of my footage, and uh, he ended up using four of my clips. I didn't know it at the time, but he was working on the Dan Aykroyd UFOs mm. unplugged with Dan Aykroyd, and uh, mm-hmm. and that actually led to me and him becoming partners on a UFO documentary called From Here to Andromeda, and we need to get into that as well because. That was the first meeting with the Anunnaki, and it's really coming into prevalence right now because of some of the things that were revealed in it. And Mm -hmm. matter of fact, I would love for you to know because people don't know what's coming up and what's involved here. And uh, I think it's great that you're giving me the opportunity, but take these – take these stories and run with them. I will. I will. I got some good good news for you. Some you did. Yeah, some like serious uh, pieces of this puzzle that are. Unknown in the UFO community from the likes of, uh, well, first of all, Boyd Bushman. Let, let's, uh, Boyd Bushman is a senior scientist from Lockheed Martin and, uh, senior scientist. Uh, he's got 25 patents. He invented the Stinger missile, the Flare radar system. This guy's a genius. And, uh, he just spilled the beans. He let us film him for the mine of David Cerritos film, uh, from here to Andromeda, and he just spilled the beans, showed us working anti-gravity, um, all the principles behind it, showed us some blueprints of the first craft that flew in 1959, a uh, flying saucer. It was nuclear-powered at that time. It was like our first attempt. Um, so uh, I'm, I just talked to George Knapp recently because I guess there's a – Bob Lazar, uh, anniversary coming up and there's going to be some hoopla about that. And one of the important things of the Boyd Bushman interview is he validates that Bob Lazar is the, is legit, which is wow. pretty mind blowing. He uh, says to David that there's some things now he can talk about because he said, I've given you the Lazar tapes. And because that came from a white world, I can talk about it, and it is legit pretty much, you know. So that's pretty uh, amazing in itself. But um, the other thing I want to share with you is when I was working with the History Channel, I uh, people may know that Bill Burns is a New York Times bestselling author. He co-wrote the book Day After Roswell with uh, Colonel Philip Corso. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had heard from someone that, you know, within the UFO community that he had heard a rumor that there were some things that Corso had removed 
out of the book. He didn't think we were ready. And so back in 2008, when I was doing the History Channel show, I asked Bill Burns that, and he confirmed that was indeed the reality. And I just left it at that. I didn't say any more. Well, uh, now, coming to the future, I've been uh, – he released a book called UFO Hunters Season 1, the book. And uh, so what the book was was every chapter was on a different – episode of season one and it got into more uh, behind the scenes um, information on that episode and this was really cool by the way because I had never known how the History Channel felt about my episode and here I find out it was their favorite episode out of it Oh wow! and they said it was actually the reason that the whole s- series got renewed for a second season really? yeah. and uh, he said that um, also it set the tone of what they thought was like the essence of the whole series. I thought that was cool. Um, but uh, because he's releasing this book, he invited me to do his future theater radio and, you know, talk about some of the things we found out, like Eric Clapton being my father, for one. Um, and uh, then it came to be that I was doing some uh, co-hosting couple times a month for a radio show called other world radio so i said you know if you want to talk on and it's a pretty big radio show so i said if you want to promote your book i'd be glad to talk to you on the show so he did um and right before the show i emailed him i said you know you had said that there was some stuff that was that was removed by philip corso out of day after roswell could we get into that in this interview and that i didn't want to just spring it on him you know, because if he would have said no, I wouldn't have brought it up. I just, I'm not like a, what's that called? Like a gorilla interviewer. It's like, <laughs> I wanted to get him his permission, you know, and be respectful right. about it. He's like, sure, we can get into that. So what he revealed just blew my mind because first of all, it gets into the JFK assassination and, uh, uh, the truth behind that reality and, and how it also ties into how we almost went to World War Three with Russia. During like the Cuban Missile, which everyone knows anyhow, but um, mm-hmm. but it was a lot more detailed than that um, because one of the things was we we were almost being pushed into a preemptive strike on Russia, uh, and it was unheard of, and it wouldn't have been they were going to hit them with everything we had, and uh, and it was because Russia wasn't playing ball; they had. They had captured a bunch of our men, like 40 guys, and pretty much turned turned them into Manchurian candidates. And it put us in a weird place because Philip Corso knew this, and he said, we can't – sucks, but we can't allow them back, you know? And, of course, Russia is like, we're going to tell everyone we have your hostages and we're ready to give them back. And mm-hmm. uh, and we won't take yeah, them. Yeah, and we won't take them. It's <laughs> creating a quite uh, – right. and, and they're like, well, listen, you happen to have – radar technology in your fighter planes that is so far advanced from the rest of the world that it's not even funny. So how about you share that with us? You know what I mean? And uh, so I, first of all, I want to tell you that I'm going to send it to you. I have this whole interview. I just put it up on my YouTube page, This the actual interview with Bill Burns. So you can hear how out of his own mouth, this and it's historical information, you know, and no one really knows it yet. But due to my own uh, curiosity with this subject, I started thinking, well, wow, 
is there anything in UFO, the, the UFO culture out there of U.S. specifically radar systems being shared with Russia? You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Sure enough, there is, and you won't believe where it came from. Where? Uh, A.R. Borton's people. What? Yeah, check this out. Uh, they ask in this, it says, so the question is, uh, who gave the Russian government the U.S. that the U.S. technology, Russia, and the rest of the world were so far behind on. It says... And this is A.R. Borden saying this? This is actually uh, Neruda talking about... When, it, okay. when 15 is brought up, 15 uh, is A.R. Borden. Okay. Um, he's, the only reason he's called 15 is he is the 15th leader to hold that position. It's that simple. The next guy will be number 16, you know? Um, but it says, so the so what can you share with me that corroborates, even to a tiny degree, that the Labyrinth Group might exist? We've already talked about who the Labyrinth Group is. Mm-hmm. Dr. Neruda says, nothing, there's nothing you could do to trace things back to the Labyrinth Group. I can't stress it enough. Our ways of filtering technologies into the private sector are extremely subtle. Okay, then, just give me an example. The Labyrinth Group developed a computer system, which we call Zemi, Z-E-M-I. Part of the unique characteristics of Zemi is that its informational structure is based on a new form of mathematics for information storage, recombinant encryption, and data compression. It was a mathematics that provided quantum improvements in each of these areas, and we share it with scientists involved in the designs of the MiG-29. You're saying that the Labyrinth Group worked with the Russian government? No, we never worked with the government directly. In this case, we worked with the Fazatron Research and Production Company in Moscow. We supplied them with an assortment of algorithms, which they in turn adopted for use within their information and fire control radar systems aboard the MiG-29. These same algorithms were discovered by American interests and are now being adopted for use in broadband delivery systems for the global market. So the American interests, can you give me a name? It's not a well-known company, but you go, but it goes under the name Omnigon based in San Diego. By the way, I found patents for Omnigon that deals with multi-dimensional attractors. <laughs> Isn't it? Wow. <laughs> says, um, so Omnigon has this technology which was originally developed by the Labyrinth Group for computer storage, and now they're using it to build broadband delivery systems. In layperson's terms, can you tell me what these networks will do? says, assuming that they use this technology appropriately, it'll enable Omnigon to embed a significant amount of functionality in the switches of networks and not rely on server-side solutions, which will increase the speed and custom functionality of a network. By definition, that wasn't in layman's terms, but it doesn't matter. It says, did the Labyrinth Group create this technology or reverse engineer it from ET sources? A little of both, actually. They were created within the Labyrinth Group, but some of the initial thinking actually came from the Zetas, who was reverse-engineered from one of their spacecraft. How does this organization, and first of all, that gets right into Corso. You see what I'm right. saying? Right. Um, because, actually, the, see how this is going to connect is Philip Corso is saying that there was a share of technology, and it dealt with Russian radar systems. So... Who Philip Corso would have went to is A.R. Borden. 
Mm. But anyhow, because it gets into his role in this. Mm-hmm. It says a little of both. How did the organization in Russia get this technology from the Labyrinth Group? 15, or A.R. Borden, knew of one of the senior scientists at Fazatron. By the way, uh, you can type in Fazatron. You'll find out they're the makers of the Russian MiG fighter jets. And they clearly state in their own description of the MiG-29 that their radar systems came from Fazatron. It says, it was a friendly gesture of A.R. Borden contacting them, which would have been done through Philip Corso, right? Which he mm-hmm. believed would later be useful in recruiting the scientists. This method of sharing creates loyalty, and it can be done in such skillful ways that the recipient of the idea will believe it was their idea in the first place and not simply given to them. But you must track these technologies or how else would you know it ended up in Omnigon's hands? And it says, we have operatives from the intelligence communities who feed us information. They're essentially moles that live within the major government research labs and military industrial complex. And in this case, one of our operatives at General Dynamics brought this to our attention. He even, I mean, we even use remote viewing technologies to track some of our more advanced technologies that we've placed within major syndicates. Um, it goes in to say, I, I, I can give you proof to one of A.R. Borden's only released documents ever. It says A.R. Borden is a retired itinerant scientist traveling the roads of America in search of people with talented ex- Talented in extended human functions. By the way, well, that's why he contacted me. In the interview, he said, there's not too many people who can tune in at will, and those that do are noticed, and you were. And that's why we're talking right now. Me and He and I became really good friends. Mm-hmm. I, I learned so much from him. But anyhow, uh, it says he is the former deputy director of the Corporate Research Center and former executive director of the American Association of Remote Viewers. But what's really interesting as well is in this one only article he's ever released, he states, much of this was already known in the late 1990s, several years before Jameson Neruda let the cat out of the bag to a journalist named Sarah. That's what I was just reading you. So, I mean, there's no doubt now that – and I talked to him in person. What happened to um, A.R. Warden? He died last year, which is – I don't know if, you know, to be honest with you, it seems like there was some something happened behind the scenes because you remember I, t- I was telling you that we did some work and it was with a lot of other teams and it was about igniting the Earth's magnetic field. In essence, creating a Dyson shell of light energy, which picture this, if a single person ignites their Merkaba field and becomes a multidimensional travel vehicle, once you're removed from this, the Earth in the same way, if it was removed from this timeline and went into the cosmic ether for even two milliseconds, those two milliseconds might equal 40 years in this realm. So that's what they did. They said in their own words were they knew Nibiru was coming through. They knew this wave was coming through. They were going to get the hell out of Dodge and take Dodge with them is what they said. So mm-hmm. you can imagine that if if you put this orb of energy and turn put the earth inside of a sun pretty much that even for two milliseconds, time goes on on the outside. Nibiru's already come and gone. 
you see what they did? You know what I mean? Yeah, right. And right, all the right. all and when we now, mind you, they didn't know how we would re-enter at the other side and re-enter this timeline. Didn't even know if it'd work. They were really like scared about it. Actually, they did. They in their own minds, they didn't have a choice because it it would have not been a good ending timeline. No. And they said in their own words, they were really surprised that any of us remembered. December 21st on the 22nd of 2012. I thought that was interesting. They, in their own words, they said they didn't know how time, time would restart for us. The next thing that happened was the next phone call. It was revealed to all of us that our mission was successful. But A.R. Borden was as scared as I've ever heard him in his voice. He said, the problem is that we've really pissed off the elite, <laughs> that they had a depopulation agenda. They wanted billions of us to die, and we just thoroughly screwed up their plans. They just built these underground dumbs or, you know, underground bases. Right, 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 in their right. own messed up minds, they were just going to go down, hunker down, and once the dust settled, they were going to resurface to their own little utopia and not have to worry about people that would misuse unlimited free energy and whatnot. That is interesting. So uh, they were really pissed off, and AR was really... I've never heard that type of tone in his voice. And he said, I want you to all be very careful. And he said, Michael, you in specific, they're targeting you. And to keep your wits about you, because he's not talking about targeting as black ops with a gun. He's talked, they have ways of, especially people around you, to tweak their emotional states and, and just make your life a living hell, you know. Is your life a living hell? Uh, well, they tried. Every time that they tried. What happened right away after that, I had worked six months in 2012 with the Spike TV network. And uh, the show was just coming out unbelievable. They came here and got testimony from uh, the Eastlake Police Department in my hometown, had corroborating evidence from Homeland Security and the Coast Guard because the 1988 famous Coast Guard event of Eastlake, Ohio, where the Coast Guard went and seen this craft – over this power plant, um, Richard Dolan uh, lists that as one of the top ten ever UFO accounts because of the government documentation backing it up. That's right here. It's the exact same place where I'm filming this stuff. It's, it hasn't stopped, you know. Um, by the way, that same power plant, um, I'm talking mm -hmm. with the History Channel right now about this because here's another bit of information that isn't known right now. Is So you got the 1988 Coast Guard event in East Lake, Ohio at CEI Power Plant. This woman sees a huge triangular craft. She calls the Coast Guard. The Coast Guard come down, witness this craft for 20 minutes, seeing these triangular craft come out of it, and they one of these craft actually buzzed their truck. This is These mm -hmm. are the Coast Guard officials, you know. Now fast forward to the future. In 2003, remember the blackout that took out most of the northern United States and yep. southern Canada? Well, on the recent Hangar 1 show, it was revealed that there was UFO sightings over three power plants that night. And one of them was the CEI power plant, same place from uh, 1988. But the fascinating thing is, is that CNN then revealed that they investigated the origin location of that entire blackout and like where it started from and again it's the east lake cei power plant the exact same place was the actual 
origination spot of that entire blackout. I think that's fascinating. That is fascinating. So then when did you first start seeing, I mean, obviously you've been seeing these orbs of light or light energy around that area for quite some time. Is that where you actually were born? Have you lived there your whole life? Yeah, I've lived here my whole life. I never really went down to the lake much, actually, though. Kind of like, you know, sometimes when you live next to something, you just get used to it. (laughs) But uh, I I go down all the time now because that's one good thing is going down to film these UFOs really, like, reawoke my uh love of going down to the lake i just go anytime now there you go you know watch the sunset and uh but anyhow about 2005 uh me and a friend were in my backyard just taking a break during band practice and he and i seen a craft i live really close to the lake it's probably only a football field length maybe two football fields from the lake and uh this craft was right on the shore and if you held your fingers up to the horizon, if you can picture like how far that it would be, mm-hmm. if you felt, held your fingers about two inches apart, that's how big this craft was in the sky. Wow. It was huge. It was huge. And uh, he and I sat there and watched it for, I don't know, about five minutes, go back and forth along the, co- the shoreline. And uh, I didn't get that one on film, you know, but I had a camcorder. I really didn't even use it it took me a year to figure out that there was a filming in nighttime mode you know but i started going down to the lake and around sunset and uh just chilling out sometimes until about i don't know midnight one o'clock and if a huge ball of light flew by i had a camera sitting around a tripod you know waiting on them nice nice yeah so i but you know that that was the beginning of this relationship with them because every year it's almost like they began letting me know that mm-hmm. they knew that I was filming them. Mm-hmm. And to be honest with you, I don't like filming them because if when you see them with your your eyes, mm-hmm. like in no camera, no nothing, they are so beautiful. Mm-hmm. It's uh they're almost like multi dimensional colors that are mm-hmm. that are so vibrant and with the the luminosity of the sun, you know? Right. And when you're filming it, you're looking through a little one inch by one inch black and white viewfinder. Right. And it's really hard to film them. It's not as easy as people think. Um, so, you know, I got to the point where I would talk to them and say, listen, <laughs> I am not filming you. I've got plenty of film already. Unless you do something new, come in closer or do something different. Otherwise, I'm, I really just want to look and let that light hit my retina. You know? Right, right. And, uh, so sure enough, they started coming in closer and closer. I had one, I didn't get this one on film, but I was, I was just sitting there. I hadn't, you know, usually I'll take two tapes and each tape will hold one hour. So if it's a really busy night and I fill up two tapes, I don't even have any, I can't film anything else. Mm-hmm. So I put my camera away and that, usually during those times, I'm really happy because, I feel like a responsibility of something cool. I need to film it to show it, you know, mm-hmm. but when I can, I, I totally just chill out and enjoy the night. So I'm sitting there and all of a sudden out of nowhere, this huge orb of light that would have been the size of like a small hot air balloon showed up about 20 feet above my head. And it lit up the whole beach area where I was and it scared the shit out of me. <laughs> First of all, I really thought I was going to be burned to death because I could see flame coming off of it. Picture wow. if it truly was. Uh, sun and you could see plasma and flame that's what it was but there was absolutely no heat it was light without heat that's amazing yeah and there was no sound so my fear instantly went away because i knew well well i'm not burning to death (laughs) that's interesting (laughs) and uh, i got to sit there and just stare at it 
at that close of a distance for probably about eight seconds, which seemed a lifetime, you know. That's incredible. And uh, after that time, it just blinked out. I, I guess they can just raise their frequency because truly yeah. our eyesight, we only see such a small spectrum of the light spectrum. You know, there's gamma rays and infrared, which is actually more energetic frequencies of light and we can't even see it you know Mm -hmm. so i think really they you know if you can see them with our eyes it's because they want you to see them Mm -hmm. and they've lowered their vibrational frequency to become visible within the human eyesight spectrum you know i've I've been giving a lot of thought to all all the people who see things like you are and, and you know the ones that actually see them more frequently like you seem to be and it's it's interesting where if you prompt them to uh, do something or show themselves that they do respond. And I actually am speaking to somebody right now who lives in South Carolina who sent me a few really remarkable videos of, I think they're very similar light anomalies that you're explaining. Mm-hmm. And uh, I can feel and he feels as well that there is a direct communication. So, you know, being that he said that and you're saying that as well, do you feel um, there's a reason for that? I mean, is it just to validate that, that what you're seeing is real or do you feel that there's there's more to it? Are they trying to communicate something to you, um, maybe telepathically? Have you ever felt any sort of a, like a message or anything? Oh, absolutely. Actually, the message came before the physical contact. Um, it was being educated on... A subject matter at this time, there was no, uh, well, I guess what I'm saying is it is now getting out there into the world and it's the movie like The Secret mm. or, uh, What the Bleep Do We Know? Mm-hmm. It's truly about how and what our quantum physicists, our leadest, leading scientists are now figuring out that consciousness lies behind all physical matter. Yeah. Um, and, uh, so I was guided into spiritual information. What happened was the beginning of this for me is I had a, 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 what would you call it? Tragedy. My aunt was murdered while living with my parents. She was going through a divorce. And, uh, this is in, uh, like 1997, I believe it was. And that's at this time. I, I hadn't gone through an awakening process or anything. It's what started the process because I genuinely put out a plea to the universe that I needed some answers. You know, mm-hmm. if, if there's anyone out there or, or in here, you need to speak up. I remember like pleading to the universe and what I got was instead of them just giving me answers, I got a, a thirst for knowledge that I'd never had before. Mm. And I ended up reading about 400 books. Wow. In about, I don't know, about a two or three year period there. And, uh, and I was guided to information with such synchronicity and weird coincidences. And it's right. like synchronicity plays a huge part in all of this, doesn't absolutely, it? Absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. They said, actually, it's, it's, they said the only way you can imagine is if you, uh, had a dream one night and in it, you met the creator and the creator gave you a flower and said, this is a symbolize our meeting and that, you know you're loved and everything is one and we know the ending of this story and it's positive. And you wake up the next morning and you're like, wow, that was such a beautiful dream. I can't believe it. And you look down and there's a real rose on your chest. <laughs> then what? Right. You know, and I think the point is that in everyone's own spiritual journey, that secret journey, that the 
you'll start to recognize synchronicities in your life. And the more you pay attention, the more they grow until they grow to the point that all doubt will be removed, that something is in communication with you. Absolutely. I could not have said it any better. Yeah. Well, <laughs> that's awesome. So that's what happened. And uh, so I went through and I, I understood those principles. And then once I got to a point where I understood what was being communicated to me through all these books, I'll tell you the one that actually changed my life. And uh, it was called the Seth material. Oh, yes. Uh, channeled by Jane Roberts. Yep. Um, I was guided to that. And I got so taken with it that at my job, I, I worked for 15 years as a manager for this company that made dollar bill acceptors or money acceptors for gaming and vending. Mm -hmm. And we had two 15-minute breaks and a lunch break. And every 15-minute break, when that bell would ring, I'd have my Seth book out and read it until the bell rang. And then the bookmark would go back in. I couldn't wait for lunch, you know. And I remember some of these concepts were – I was thinking so hard that it actually, like, my temples started to hurt. <laughs> you know, I've never experienced that before in my information life. Information overload. Yeah, too much information. <laughs> but um, that started it all because then once I had read those books and started to understand what was being communicated, there, I tell you what, there's a big difference between information and knowledge. You know, information right. is you get it, then you got to start implementing it in your right. life. Right. And I, I figured, well, I got to start. I, I started to understand that fear is the mind killer. You know, Absolutely. and uh, so if I didn't, if I didn't have any fear, what would I want to do? Well, music brings me joy beyond anything. And I thought, well, and this voice has told me, if you only had a mustard seed of faith, so to speak, and stepped out of your own life without a net. I had a house. I had a car. I was making, I was a manager at this company. I was making really good money. Uh, but I got to tell you this because it's part of this because uh, I helped them get a postal contract service. So you can imagine every post post office in the United States, you know, they have those stamp machines where you go mm -hmm. in and you get, put your money in. I had uh, got um, I had got them this deal with the postal contract service uh, to have our dollar bill acceptors in those stamp machines. So you can imagine it was a $35 million That's awesome. uh, account. Well, you'd, one would think so. Oh, I was going to say. <laughs> At that point, I loved my job. Me and my boss <laughs> was one of my best friends. We were traveling all over the United States. I had a company credit card. We ate like kings and traveled and partied. like We were just having fun. All of a sudden, this bigger company seen the profit margin. Now, mind you, to make that postal contract service work, everyone kicked in and was working a ton of overtime and coming in on Saturdays. And uh, this bigger company came in and bought the company out and laid everybody off. Um, it went from 340 employees down to 20 employees. Wow. And I was one of the 20 they wanted to keep. And I was just heartbroken because those people were my family, you know. And since I was in a manager position, so many people were coming to me and were just afraid, like, are we losing our jobs? And the answer was yes. Mm. But it really hadn't even got out into the company yet. And uh, I took it like – so I walked – I didn't know what to do. I, I put myself on the layoff list. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And uh, so I get called into the president's office and he says, listen, I decide who gets laid off and you're not getting laid off. Uh, we need you, and uh, that's the end of it. So I'm thinking at that point, well, this creating your own reality stuff ain't working real well. You know what I mean? <laughs> so I'm like, what to do? And I didn't know what to do. So 
you know what I did for real is, uh, this is fucked up now that I think about it. Um, I told you the first Mormon temple is yeah. here and the actual park where they quarried the stone is called Chapin Forest. I didn't know it at the time, but that has been my oasis my whole life. When I had, like, I've been going there as a, since a teenager, you know? So at this time, instead of going to work for an entire week, I got up just like I was going to work and I just drove to the park and meditated <laughs> and just tried to find some center. And I, I, for a week, I just didn't call in or nothing. So after that week, I decided, well, I got to do something. So I drove back to work and I went right to the president's office and I said, listen, I, I can't explain this to you, but I need to do this. I need to give this a chance. I said, all I'm asking you to do is do what you're doing to all these other people. Lay me off. I need the unemployment. You know, I need, and you know, I've helped this company. And he said, I'll tell you what, if you'll just stay till the end layoff phase, I'll give you a, they gave me a kick-ass severance package. And, uh, you know, so that was the end of that. But afterwards, I felt a freedom that I hadn't felt in a long time because my my universe and future was totally wide open for the first time. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Anything was possible. About five months, though, went by and no magical doors had opened. You know, uh, hadn't nothing had happened. And at this time, I had the most lucid vision dream that I've ever had, actually, in this what had happened was I was being guided down a corridor by a guide, and it emptied out into a club. And in it, Steve Vai, famous musician, mm-hmm. was doing a sound check. And I remember him doing this song. He was, it was called There's a Train That's Leaving. And it was really spiritual. I remember these lyrics. And he was actually, like, levitating above the floor. And as he's singing, he moved over, floated over to where me and this guide was, and it was like this sequence was encoded right into the song. Uh, the song's like, nah, 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 and he says, welcome aboard. It was dead silence, but when he said <laughs> welcome aboard, it was in like a Hollywood divine God voice. Oh my God. You know what I mean? And, right. it was, and it woke me up right out of the dream. I was like, what the hell is that right. about? You know. So the next day, I had this nagging feeling that there was this synchronicity waiting for me at his website, you know, vi.com. So I thought, wouldn't it be weird if I went there and there was this new, th- like a news blurb saying he's working on a new song called "There's a Train That's Leaving" or that something? Weird. You know, that would be pretty weird. So I get to his website, and the first thing I see it says, "Enter the Steve I Ibanez Guitar Challenge." Well, the fur on the back of my neck went up. I knew I was going to win that contest before <laughs> before I even recorded a single note because I just met him the night before, and he said, "Welcome aboard." Oh my god! And then for real, in real reality, I ended up winning the contest. Are you serious? Yeah. So they wow. Fl- flew me to uh, a G3 show, which is a Satriani, Joe Satriani and Steve Vai, and there's usually a third guy then, which is you know they've had Eric Johnson. Uh, every year is a different third guy, but um. Well, congratulations on that. Thank you, because that was Steve was such an inspiration to me as a musician, you know, and uh, and. He was one of the most enlightened people. Matter of fact, I brought him a Seth book, you know. Oh, did you really? Yeah, and I uh, I handed it to him, and uh, he smiled. He goes, you know, I've read every Seth book. He <gasps> said, 
Are you serious? Yeah, he said, don't get wrapped up in the messenger. There's still something higher. And I said, oh, wow, that's so important. Yeah, and I said, right on, man. But me and Steve have become uh, friends. He, It was part of the contest, but he actually gave me one of his own personal guitars, which I treasure, you know, because uh, the, the dude truly is one of the most enlightened people. And that led to me uh, knowing Joe Satriani and Joe offered me a PV endorsement deal for his amplifiers at the time. And I actually ended up getting Joe to be in the same UFO documentary the, that Boyd Bushman is in. Uh, really? Yeah, I got Joe and Steve. Steve made a cameo. Didn't say anything. It was just me and him meeting at a, the NAMM show. But Joe let us film him talking about his own viewpoint on extraterrestrials, and that's in the movie. So that – Tell you what, those are, you know, that is almost weirder to me than seeing a UFO. You know, I'm sitting there, I'm the one holding the <laughs> shotgun mic while we're filming Joe Satriani, you know. <laughs> I'm just kind of pinching myself in the same, same way, uh, you know, when I met Steve I, I was so nervous. But the first thing he asked me, he's like, are you hungry? Are you thirsty? Do you need anything? Wow. I'm like, no, man. I'm getting pensioned myself. <laughs> I'm being punked. <laughs> exactly, exactly. That's really awesome. Well, you know, I, I know that there's something about the music, and, and I don't know if you've been following a lot of what Grant Cameron's been researching about experiencers and music. I've I've been on this track for I got Michael Luckman involved. He's okay, in, uh, great, right? Yeah, so I, yeah, I think it's a fascinating subject. I'm glad you're uh, interested in it. Oh, definitely. I mean, he and I talked about this, and and when he started posting a lot of these um, things that he was researching, something just it's like something hit me on the side of the head, and I went, oh my god, okay, yes, now I know why. It's like all of a sudden everything made sense to me, and. I mean, I have loved music my whole life. And uh, when I was really young, I was really into progressive rock. And I was really into the band Yes. Oh, right on. And I, there was just something about John Anderson. It was just, I can't even tell you what it was. But there was, I mean, I was like not almost 12 years old when I bought Relayer, which is like, there's three songs on the whole album. The first side is one song. Okay. Mm -hmm. And it was so trippy that, I mean, my house was filled with, you know, like Glenn Campbell and, and like Herp Albert and the Tijuana Brass and Engelbert Humperdinck and the Beatles. Why would I resonate with something like that at that age? Right you know, and I ended up um, becoming a singer. I sang in, in choir all the time and I was in a band in high school and my, uh, my drummer, he would go out into his car during the break and, you know, smoke a joint. And I remember hearing this music coming from his car and I was like, what the hell was that? So I went out there and I just knocked on the window and he rolled it down and he was listening to like Peter Gabriel, like the early, early Genesis, like Lamb Lies Down on Broadway. And, yeah, right on. you know, and we all know, I mean, not we all know, but I've come to find out that that you know, John Anderson and Peter Gabriel um, seem to have a little bit more um, information when it comes to, um, you know, the consciousness than like most people would. And they seem to convey it with their music. And maybe it's not just lyrically. 
and in the composition, but maybe it's even in the resonance of it. Oh, yeah. And I think that there's something about the resonance of music that seems to vibrate um, and and speak to certain people for maybe a certain reason. And I used to paint listening to, yes, these huge hmm. abstract acrylic paintings that, you know, I used to draw... Um, I'm an artist as well, and I used to draw drawings of, of like, uh, air, the airport on Mars, you know, and just the whole terrain and what they oh, looked wow. like, and, you know, and, and, but it was the music that inspired me to have these things come out of my hand. So is there a connection between vibration, sound vibration, um, and the, the mind and the way that our brains are wired or, or recalling memories? Well, it's provable now. Um, I can send you two scientific reports that, that they know that music, first of all, it taxes the human mind more so than anything else, even science, rocket scientists and quantum physicists. They're, nothing that they're doing makes neurons fire anything as close to a musician because truly music is one of the only two things that is known that makes both hemispheres of the brain fire simultaneously. You know, everyone knows there's the analytical side of the brain and then there's the creative side of the brain. Right, the right and the left. Yeah, and uh, right. that most people, their whole life view and how they, the lens that they put before how they perceive their reality is either through the scientific, analytical, engineering side or the creative side. Music makes both sides fire simultaneously because it is creative and mathematical simultaneously. Right. Um, by the way, the other thing that they know scientifically what makes both hemispheres fire simultaneously is meditation, which is interesting. Um, hmm. But there's studies now that have shown how it actually changes the human brain, that uh, when people are introduced in becoming music and they become musicians, it rewires on a, like, minute scale, you know, the human brain. But here I think that, well, this is going to be perfect because in the, I have a letter, the first letter of, uh, I should share this with you too, um, that A.R. Borden sent me is called a letter to Michael. And it's like an introduction letter to why that they think that we've been drawn together and what they are and what they have to offer me, you know. And he says, uh, you also have music in you, but not in the sense of just playing guitar or composing songs. You see, to create matter, you need music, or more specifically, sounds. Not just any one sound, but specific sound frequencies in combination. You'll also learn about this in your course of concentration, and you'll learn how to use them to light and code objects out of thin air. Remember I was telling you about LERM? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, what you uh, we were originally speaking about. Um, mm -hmm. Then he says, uh, and the kind of music you may come to know and write and produce will be nothing like what exists today because you'll most likely to learn to use the true Pythagorean scale from which creation itself comes. Now, Pythagorean scale is really interesting because uh, I think... I was just talking about this. Go on. The, yeah, <laughs> it's the difference of our musical standard being put into 440 right. um, by the Nazis, and the true Pythagorean scale has A at 432. And um, because of semantic or sonic geometry, or uh, there's different ways of explaining this, but truly what how it began is they would take like a, a table, a round table, and put sand on it, and then take a bow, and it's tuned to like a specific frequency. And when you make 
make it sound, you'll see the sand start to dance, and it turns into geometric form by nothing but the frequency. And then it evolved into where they would take a bowl, and the inside of the bowl would be painted black, and then they would, like, rubber cement that to a big speaker, and then put a waveform generator onto the speaker to pump a specific frequency, even, like, through a spectrum of frequencies. And you can see what geometry, then, is being formed by specific uh frequencies and what you find out is when it's at 440 hertz there's not much geometry it's more or less just like a uh a pond that just has a little ripples in it mm-hmm. but you back it off eight cents and it's almost like you're taking a focus on a camera and mm-hmm. it's, it, it comes into beautiful perfect geometry like a snowflake wow. um and the the reason this is important is once an instrument is tuned into 440 say like to get to the octave all you do is double that frequency it's just that simple and but when you go to the higher octave then of double frequency there's still no geometry mm-hmm. if you go to the fifth halfway between the octave there's still no uh geometry but when you put the a into 432 then at all the proper ratios which pythagoras came up with there's perfect geometry as well Wow. Um, which is interesting because the fact of the matter is, though, some of the most enlightened and most impactful musicians in our reality, people like Jimi Hendrix and Eddie Van Halen and Steve Ray Vaughan and just a, a slew of people, they call it a half-step tuning down, where they tune a whole one whole note down. So it's one fret on an instrument. Mm-hmm. And uh, a lot of people said, you know, well, the thinking is that it puts it into a more human friendly uh, spectrum, you know, it, mm-hmm. for the first thing. But, uh, you know, no doubt about it, they got their instruments out of 440. Probably still didn't create the, ge- you know, because nothing is going to create as perfect geometry as 432. Um, but it would be better than 440. And uh, I think it was like, Plato or something said you can, you can judge a civilization by the quality of their music. I don't think he's talking about quality as in if they're writing kick-ass songs like the Beatles. Right, right. I know what you're saying. Yeah. <laughs> I think the quality <laughs> has to do with because in the past, this is a recent development, by the way. It was mm-hmm. in 1940 that the musical standard was changed to 440. Before that, there's actually people who their job in like some of the uh, Asian kingdoms was to go out and make sure everyone's instruments were tuned properly can you even imagine <laughs> living and, in a world like that <laughs> well, i'll tell you what what here's an interesting thing do you know what a tibetan singing bowl is Have of you course seems right on absolutely do you know the chakra the small bowls that hit the crown chakra are all tuned to 432 of course isn't that beautiful it's like it is beautiful it shows and that's you what they're they so know. beautiful you know what i've i've started doing something it started off with because i'm a big crystal bowl fan now and uh you should be yeah so check this out pour a little water into your 430 bowl 432 bowl and then get it to sing you're infusing that water with a frequency and then drink it you know that's such a great idea yeah simple stupid you know because uh look at (laughs) look at dr emoto's work of how we don't even know what water truly is you know exactly it's divine it has memory it's conscious um absolutely so i uh i've started you know and check this out too i've started i've taken some of my friends and they're letting me use them as a a guinea pig but i'll have them lay on my couch and i'll put that singing bowl right on their third eye 
Oh my gosh. Physically and then get it to sing. And, uh, they're like, that's the most incredible experience that they've ever had. Like my friend, he's not into any of this. He's kind of skeptic or, you know, the next time he's, First thing he asked when he came over, he goes, do that bull thing on me. Do that bull <laughs> thing on me. <laughs> so I think there's a technology there. And a matter of fact, um, I got to share this with you because I think it's really freaking fascinating. I, I came across another uh, contactee, um, some information from him. His name was Greg Plasco, and he was in contact with a race called the Pleiadians. And they had channeled how to do these. They call them Pleiadian healing discs. And what it was was crystal glass that had an image embedded into the crystal. And it said what the most important thing was the image. And if you go along with the idea that certain geometric forms innately have subtle energy, like people talk about pyramid power, you know, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. um, then what was important was to have that image correlate somehow to sacred geometry and put that in the disc. And then the whole disc has a band of copper that surrounds the disc. That, right. Cause I, cause crystal, the best thing it does is holds vibrational information. Uh, that's why it's in computers and, you know, whatever. Uh, the copper band stops any, any subtle energies from leaving the disc and it turns into a, like a, an amplifier. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So I'm learning this uh, from one of his initiates, and I'm starting to create my own discs. And I thought it was really fascinating. But simultaneously, I had been studying what exactly what we're talking about uh, of semantics and the, the relationship of vibration to matter. So I started on a quest to actually track down every note of a musical scale tuned properly. You see what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Like the actual image for an A in 432, and then the C would be 528, and then track down the actual uh, image of the actual geometry being formed by that. Well, I did. And, did um, you? Yeah, and I've created the first set of these uh, crystal discs. They're beautiful beyond – when you see them, they just speak and – um, I would love to see them. Check out how I just posted some pictures. Um, actually, on my Facebook wall, my larger, I don't know what they call it, like the... Cover photo. Yeah, the bigger one is uh, all the discs on a table. And the, oh, that's cool. I'll have to check it out. Yeah, because they're beautiful. And I'll tell you what, I've been... Um, uh, this is the first show that I just got back from, the Erie MUFON conference. Mm-hmm. And uh, people were just drawn to them. And I've... Uh, I just can't believe the interest in them. But I'll tell you, what what you do is you just hold one in your hand. Like when I'm watching TV or something, uh, it will get so abnormally hot that it's almost like you'd think there's a battery in it or something. And at that point, obviously, there's a lot of energy in it. And you can do with it whatever you want. You could will it, intend it to, you know, to heal your water or food or chakra centers. Um, what did you make? I'm looking at them right now. What did you make them out of, actually? They're uh, crystal glass that I uh, found a very specific distributor, which he was he was led to, which was nice. But that's the hardest thing is getting the product. Um, and they do. They're very specific crystal glass that are made to really awesome tolerances. And then it's kind of like a... Uh, 
a special process to get the image into the crystal. Yeah, I was going to say. Yeah, because they're very translucent and very beautiful. And when this is an organic photo, that's actually the photo of the water. They put cornstarch in it, and then they put uh-huh. a camera as they pump frequency through the water. So that isn't been created by a computer. That's incredible. So my thought was... Obviously, sacred, and see the front one there? See how mm-hmm. I superimpose sacred geometry over of one, of, one of the sonic geometry. So it's almost like a demonstration disc to show you truly what this That's is. That's incredible because it's exactly symmetrical. Oh, yeah, it's perfect. So, uh, yeah, so what you find out even through, it's an easy process for here, and I'm working on the brochures for, because this is how new this is. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of uh, knowledge out there of how, the different musical notes of the scale relate to the different chakra centers. Of course, yeah. So definitely. even for people that use Reiki, mm-hmm. they could use a specific disc of a, you know, for the specific. Well, funny um, you should mention that because I do. Oh, well, there you have it. <laughs> <laughs> um, there are the and people. Well, I'll tell you what. Once that gets charged up, you can feel it. It just right. it's great. I can see how that would definitely. Well, I'll tell you what. It'd be an incredible feeling. I'd love to check that out. I will send you one for free. Just because, Are you serious? Yeah. I gave Richard Dolan one, too, and he was freaking out. He goes, this is the most beautiful gift anyone has ever given. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, I'll tell- That's a good thing that you did that for him, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's not up for like some of the spiritual stuff. It's well, good. you know what? I don't know. I think Richard's uh, you know, changing his tune, no pun intended. I love him. I, uh, I do. Yeah, he's a great guy. Yeah, yeah. Definitely. Well, I'll tell you what after the conversation because right now it's kind of strange because what we're talking about um i've created a documentary that was to be shown at the pythagoras conference oh that's what i was telling you the spike tv show Mm. they shut it down and then i let myself get regressed by a professional hypnotist i let them do it you know they shut down everything i was working on and uh, that show really pissed me off because a lot was hanging on the you know i did it for free because they said it would spin off into a show where then I would become a member of a team. You know what I mean? Right. And uh, so when it was shut down, it shut down everything. But anyhow, I created a whole documentary called Aliens, Pythagoras, and the holographic or the programming language of the holographic universe is what I called it. And so long story short, I'm sharing this bit of information, and there's another one that I didn't create, but it's fantastic, called Sonic Geometry. And I'm sending both of these uh, to – I've already sent them to Grant Cameron, and I'm going to be uh, with Richard Dolan, and I'll share them with you as well. Because the one I did, I think it's – I'm really proud of it, and uh, – and it explains very well. First of all, I took this stuff from From Here to Andromeda. We interviewed a few professors on who Pythagoras truly was. People don't know he had a stepbrother. His name was Astraos, and Astraos was told him he's not from here. Really? That's where Pythagoras got a lot of his wisdom and started to figure these things out. So uh, I put this whole thing together, and I'll send it to you because I think it's the next phase of what what is going on here. But, yeah, I will send you one of the discs. Each one of these is from a different frequency. Incredible. Seven discs in total um, because there's seven notes before you get to the octave. The eighth note will be the octave of the first. Right. Um, and then wow. I made one... Uh, like that demonstration disc that has the sacred geometry superimposed over it. 
Um, but yeah, yeah, I think that there's a whole technology there. I'm gonna try this. Like I I'm thought, try what you said. Like imagine if you held a 432 disc in your right. hand and then train yourself to be able to hum or chant at 432 ohm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't know what would happen. You know, you might never see me again. Yeah, you might just pop, <laughs> pop right out. <laughs> I'll send it. I'll send you a postcard. Yeah, hey, that was cool, Mike. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, you know, I. I you know, I don't even know what they do. Some people, when they're asking, I'd say, you know, at the worst, you're going to have a really cool paperweight, <laughs> you know? Oh, yeah, but, but they're just beautiful. They're just yeah. a source of art, each one of them, definitely. Yes, but, you know, but then if you understand what Crystal does, you mm-hmm. understand uh, what's inside that disc, and you understand what Copper does, then it's almost like, you know how empower, uh, how important intention is. Absolutely. You know, so if people get a higher use of these, I think that they're not going to be disappointed when they use them for energy work beyond just a work of art. Absolutely. Wow. Yeah. So I found those little crystalline, uh, the acrylic stands for them too. So it's pretty. It looks great. Yeah. Well, you know, I'll let you know what happens, um, during a Reiki session. That would be listening to the Tibetan uh, bowls during the Reiki session. Uh Perfect. Yes, All right, Michael, I've got to wrap it up. Cool. It's been great talking to you. I... It was really, really great talking to you tonight. I, it's been a, a, wa- a long time coming that we've, you know, finishing our last conversation. So yes, indeed. I'm just really fascinated by everything that you're sharing. And, and I would love to talk more about what you're doing musically. And also, do you have a link to your um, YouTube page again? Yeah, it's Frozen Hill. And right. uh, if anyone wants to contact me on uh, Facebook, it's just Michael Lee Hill. Um, I did start Lake Area UFOs um, for posting, you know, a lot of just a uh, place to keep the UFO research. So you can uh, ask to become a member of that as well. That's great. And then as far as the future is concerned, uh, maybe we could see a book about all this at some point. We'll see. There seems to be a lot of stuff <laughs> in uh, in motion right now. I'm just kind of riding the wave, you know. Do it. Um, but uh, yeah, whatever right. the universe wants of me, I'm I'm game. <laughs> Great. All right, Michael. Thank you so much for uh, the thanks opportunity for, to talk. Thanks for joining me tonight, and uh, thanks for listening to Random Alien Brain Droppings. And we'll see you next time. Peace.